Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, we've got what is really my favorite conversation that I've had on this podcast in the last two years. Um, This week, I'm talking with Angelique Palmer, author of a recently released book of poetry, Also Dark. Uh, There are discussions of mental health and suicidality in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. This is episode 82 of Untenure Tracks. Yes, uh, it is my book that was released on uh, November 9th through Etruscan Press. I'm completely grateful. So I'm so glad that it came out in November because that's a gratitude month. And I'm really grateful that all of the things that aligned, aligned to make that book happen. Um, one of the things that, that happened is that I was accepted to and was able to attend a writing retreat for women uh, called A Room of One's Own. A Room of Her Own, excuse me. A Room of Her Own. I'll tell you why I made that mistake in just a second. And there, Lori Carter, or Lori Jean as she's known, uh, took a video of me doing a poem. um, A poem I had done five months prior on final stage in front of my whole entire poetry Uh, performance poetry community and so I knew it I knew it solid and I knew I could do it and the writing retreat had to do with water and this poem has a great big water metaphor all the way through it Uh, I guess Lori Jean showed Bill and Phil this poem and they said her we want her and um, they had a meeting with me and they said you know this is what we'd like to do with your work and I said okay, but that poem already exists in another book. And they said, well, show us some, show us what you got. And a friend of mine who is part of my performance poetry community, my competitive poetry community said, you don't have to get ready if you stay ready. Mm-hmm. And I did have a manuscript ready. And that's what I showed them. And they said, this, we want this. And so between the this, we want this and her, we want her. Um, the stars aligned and also dark happened. Um, it also took a lockdown and writing a lot of poems during that lockdown in which I did not talk to other humans for a very, very long time that weren't myself. Like I had great long conversations with myself. Of course I did. Um, but I hadn't talked to other people for a very long time about anything really cool and significant, even if it was over the phone, I would go days and days without calling people because I didn't want to worry them. And I would write those things down and those things became poems. Um, yeah, all of those, those events had to line up like planets in order for this book to happen. So it's not unironic that the person on the front of the book is wearing a dress made of stars because the stars all had to align to create this thing. It's so interesting. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the 
the content of of also dark you know your your the themes that you explore um your inspirations for it absolutely i'll start with the inspiration for the uh the title mm -hmm. there's an obad at the end of the book um that talks about mourning being also dark so an obad is a, a love poem it's a song a dawn song where um the lover is greeting the morning but lamenting the night as it leaves and you know i just also thought that the midnights are also dark midnight is morning while being night it's also dark and and there's the poem and the poem came out as an abad and then i just i knew that there was a dichotomy in the conversations that i'm having with also my brain <laughs> Um, throughout the book, and one is would be described as dark, and one would be described as light, but neither is a villain, neither is a hero, and sometimes the dark might be skewed toward being a villain. Well, that's my whole life. That's colorism. That's people saying dark skin, dark this, dark that, the bad guy wears black. No, this is a part of me is an absolute part of me that is in conversation with another part of me. And um, so all of those things come together to make also dark a thing, but not a bad thing. I, I, I don't know if I'm being clear about that. <laughs> no, I think you are. I think you, I think you definitely are. Um, um, some nope. of the poems in it, as you asked, uh, that really resonate with me is explore how my family's dealing with my mother's uh, slide into Alzheimer's and dementia. They explore how I'm dealing with my own slide into aging and how I, I have this internal ageist that lives inside of me that, that has a big critical voice and she's mean. God, she's mean. <laughs> and like I said to you shortly before we started recording, I am a total smoke show. So why is she mean to this beauty that is me? Um, and she is, again, me. <laughs> um, and I, I explore some of the ways in which I know what love looks like to Hollywood and to love poems and poetry and what it's actually shown up as in my life. And sometimes I'm writing love poems to people who are actually myself. And sometimes I'm writing love poems to people with no faces and that's okay. Um, and yeah, I, I love how those three intersections kind of came together in this book. And made just kind of the busiest traffic jam there was. <laughs> I, well, I've I've been fortunate enough to to see a little bit of it, and I am excited to um, be able to pick up a copy and and read all of it. Um, <clears throat> I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your your writing process. Um, uh, what what is your process like, and and um, how do you see your process evolving over time? Um, However, however you want to interpret that that question, um, please, please. Well, <laughs> let's see if I can get this even close to right. Because um, of course I have to get it right. I'm a I'm a teacher. There's a correct answer. There is no correct answer. <laughs> um, my my writing process is theft. Uh, 
it is me stealing from other people who do it better than I do. So it starts with The Artist Way, uh, which is a book I read about three or four years ago that I continually reread because it'll give you a roadmap to creating something. Um, Natalie Goldberg is in there. Oh, gosh. Um, what is the name of that poetry book? It's, it's, it's out of my head right now. But I can see the cover of it. Um, there are three different books that kind of contribute to those things. There's a little John Gardner in there, although he gets to be a little sexist toward the end. And um, there's a little Stephen King in there. He's a really he's really good at setting up a scaffolding to writing a project. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said something about uh, if you're going to say the N-word, say the actual N-word, don't say the N-word. Mm-hmm. And I, I disagree with that. You don't have the privilege not everyone has the privilege to say that i know it's foreign in my mouth so i don't say it you don't get to say that mr stephen king so um again i i take what i need leave what i don't Mm -hmm. um i definitely know that writing practice is a thing uh to go back to natalie goldberg where you every so often have to sit up every morning get a, a piece of paper and a pencil or a notebook. I love how she said a notebook with the Muppets on the cover. <laughs> it tells you how long ago that was written. Um, but get a, a wire bound notebook or a composition book and just write for five minutes. Get it out of your head because that gets the poem to the flesh. Um, it's like scrubbing away the dead skin to get the, the right moisture to the flesh. And I love that. Um, so I do that often enough. I do it definitely in the summer when there's a month that's got 30 days in it. I usually do it in November. I failed miserably this month. It's, it's hard to be a kindergarten teacher and a writer. I'm learning how to balance those two things this year. And for some reason this year in particular, it's been difficult. Um, I, I am fantastic at it in April because it's, I do it like it's my job in April. It's National Poetry Month. We have to nail it down. Um, and, you know, every so often I, I will just get a bug in my fancy and I'll say I'll do 28 days of writing in the middle of any esoteric day, esoteric month. I just, I do it. And again, I do it like it's my job because it counts. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets the bad drafts out of the way. It gives you the good lines that you, you can mine later. You can mine a draft for lines and take out the gold and leave the rough. Um, you can, it gives you places to be in your, your body the right way. It's good and therapeutic to the poet inside of you, just like most of us should be, um, and me included, be talking to a therapist every so often to hear what it sounds like out loud, to exercise that muscle every so often we go to the gym. This is what that's like. And that's my, my process is I do the work. Um, and it's not always, like, like I said, this November. But <laughs> um, I'll get back on the horse because I never saw. Oh, I'm curious, why, do you, why is it, do you think, that, that there are months where you are able to, like you, you said, you know, November typically in, in April, you are able to, you know, put your head down and, and, and knock out a lot of the work, but other times of the year, you're less able to. What, what do you think it is about the timing oh, of it? 
I think it has a couple of things. Um, in December, you're expected to show your face in everybody's house um, before pandemics. It's like, hey, here's a party. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Um, and so you have, or I do, I have different responsibilities in different months. There's a lot of catching up and, and making sure you're working in January so that you can catch up with the bills. And so your brain is not there or mine. I'm going to try and say mine because it's not about you. Um, <laughs> definitely is not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my brain is not here many times either. So. <laughs> um, and I don't know, there's something about April where I know all the other writers are, are writing too. That makes me happy. And it makes me try and, and buckle down with them and, and solidarity, if you will. There's something about February where I look around and I say, everybody's working. I should get to work and and um, and maybe have some more poetry gigs. No, I'm just going to grade. <laughs> and that happens too. Um, so it, it does depend on where there's fallow space, where there's growing, where the soil needs to be turned. And if I'm ready. I'm ready to bloom. Let's get these these drafts out. Um, those two things can exist at the same time, but usually don't. Mm -hmm. um, I also wanted to say that I, I like that you mentioned the importance of like um, getting the bad drafts out of the way, um, because I think, at least in my limited experience, uh, there like perfectionism can can be such a hindrance. Um, to any to any kind of writing, but I, I I have to imagine that perfectionism in poetry is a uh, uh, particularly lethal combination. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, <laughs> so remember how I mentioned there's a mean girl that talks about uh, how how well I'm aging. Um, the, the, she sits on a committee, which I call the <laughs> shitty committee, and the shitty committee always has something to say. Like, really, this is why I'm in therapy. I, I have to, like, be able to turn on the volume knob on the shitty committee. And, and one of the, the leading voices on the shitty committee is perfectionism. It's like, oh, it's not perfect. You have to, you, it happened with Also Dark, where I called Bill. Like, this is not the book I want you to print. <laughs> it's not perfect. People are not going to like it. It's not going to sell it. And, and please give it back to me. <laughs> And I will give you back your advance. It's just, and, and you know, uh, Pamela and Bill had to kind of talk me off a ledge. Like, it's okay. This is going to be a necessary piece of work that needs to be out there. So perfectionism, um, while having a very strong presence on, on most people's shitty committees, um, really is not a useful tool in life. It will help you miss the best parts of life. So... Um, I also learned a long, long time ago, uh, perfection is but a moment, and it goes that quick. And then you've worked a very long time for a snap of the fingers. That's not okay. So maybe the work is the, pur the purpose. Maybe the progress is the purpose instead of the perfect moment. And um, I, I, I kind of subscribe to that now, where I like getting it right, but I know it's temporary. So... Maybe I look at the work and put together those Lego blocks of work and go, ooh, that's pretty. 
that's that is a very um oh gosh how do i how do i put it that is something that i i want to try to impart to my students uh and to to incorporate into my own teaching philosophy and i've, I've struggled to um over my career uh oh, you know what when we were talking about um people who helped me get ready to write i talked about natalie goldberg and i, I talked about john guy i did not talk about d matthews so aria d matthews who's a, a professor up north I think it's Michigan, and I, um, don't quote me on that. Uh, I took a workshop with her at the Pink Door Writing Retreat, um, which is a writing retreat that was very essential. Um, it used to happen in Rochester, New York, every summer, and it was for uh, people who were, uh, no, I just say black, black queer people, and. Um, Dee taught this, this particular workshop called Bitch Get Free. Now, I don't use the B word. I don't. I, it doesn't sound right. I, I love the F word. I'm not going to use it now, but I love the F word, but the B <laughs> word doesn't sound right, so I don't ever use it. But I use it in that particular instance because everything that was holding me back got let go of mm -hmm. at that writing retreat. Everything that, that I just, I, I got to get free of the things that I should be doing and started doing the things I need to do for myself. If you can't get free in the process, then, then, then the process is also a hindrance. It's also going to hold you back. Um, there's a way to look at those pretty little Lego bricks on the ground and go, I know I want to put that one there or that one there and that one there. And then there's a way to look at all those pretty little Lego bricks and just get overwhelmed by the Lego bricks. So um, the getting free is to know where the bricks go. And she helped me see that. And so I give her full props for that. Um, and I, I happen to love her work too. Um, so shout out to black women that know how to put together great things. Um, I say that to say that it helped me defeat perfectionism to a certain degree. Um, it helped me also say, I want to take adventures. That is when I, I uh, signed up or, or applied rather to go to a room of her own. That is when I went to the Furious Flower Writing Retreat, which happens every 10 years is this influx of wonderful um, black poets from the watering hole, from the Appalachian poets um, that all come together at uh, the Furious Flower Writing Retreat in um, Harrisonburg, Virginia. It happened that particular year in 2014. And then I wrapped around to 2015, where at the beginning of 2015, I applied to a room of her own and got accepted the weekend I was on final stage at the Women of the World Poetry Slam. It was just that lovely little aligning of the stars. Um, and so, like I said, it's it's knowing where the blocks go. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> no, you're not. Because <laughs> <laughs> silence makes such a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people want to listen to. Um, so you... You mentioned in there, um, and I, I hope you can ex expound on this a little bit, um, getting getting freed from what you should be doing, um, mm -hmm. because I think that's something that a lot of uh, uh, young writers, I, I think, need to understand more, uh, or new writers, maybe I should say, the new writers, um, 
Um, yeah, because I was a new writer and I was old. So um, <laughs> I'm not old anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what I should be doing is I should be applying to 7,000 different journals so I can get published. What I should be doing is making sure I have a, a plan B job so that I can fall back on it when my parents are right about me being a writer. What I should be doing is um, making sure that I have a job where I can make student loan payments and all of that kind of stuff. Those are shoulds. Those are shoulds that help um, that thing right there, especially perfectionism, especially perfectionism. It's a weapon in that particular character's pocket. And um, the shoulds were keeping me at my sister's house. <laughs> I used to live in her basement. Um, were keeping me um, lamenting mistakes I had made in the past. I should be very contrite and mea culpa, mea maxima culpa about all of the things I had done wrong uh, with this life of mine and wrong being in air quotes. Um, instead of, okay, you've got a lot of life to keep living. Let's go do that. That's getting free. It's the living of the life. It's the... Um, I should have had dinner at eight o'clock, but I stayed writing this draft. So now I'm eating cereal in my underwear, standing over the sink at midnight. I got free though. Um, should is is a, definitely a weapon of perfectionism. Yeah, I yeah, that sounds like something that should go on like a shirt. Can't write down fast enough. Um, so the next thing I wanted to ask you about is um, uh, what what was your path to becoming a poet? I'm, I'm very I'm always very interested in how people uh, sort of discover what their what their calling was or is. Mm. I don't know how to answer that one because I don't want to traumatize you, Andrew. I like you. <laughs> um, so the answer is my 10th grade teacher said that a draft I, of something I wrote that of a book I didn't really read, um, probably Slaughterhouse-Five, um, <laughs> sounded really poetic and really sweet and just kind of took me under his wing. And then he passed me to my 11th and 12th grade teacher. So Mr. Diaz passed me to Miss Felice, please take care of Palmer. She's going to be a great writer someday. And then I forgot that. I forgot. Um, I went to, to uh, community college because I didn't get accepted to my first choice and got bummed out and started sleeping on my mama's couch. And she's like, no, go to, go to school. Here's the story about that. So this is just a, a little bit of tangent. So help me get mm -hmm. back on the road when, we, when I get done. Okay. Um, the tangent is that my mom said um, my favorite high school teacher was Mr. DeFilippo. He taught government and he went to Florida State University. Um, and he loved Tallahassee like it was his job, like he loved it. And so um, he pulled my mom aside, knowing I was depressed that I didn't get into my first choice school. And I was just, and, you know, they use that, that term depressed on children so often. I was not there anymore. I had left my body. Mm -hmm. And he, he noticed the change in my demeanor and just kind of said to my mom, Take her to Tallahassee, see if she likes it. Now, I didn't know this until maybe 10 years later, but my mom didn't just take me to Tallahassee. 
she rented a van. And I just kept thinking to myself, all of my stuff is in the back of this van. But I'm so bright, I didn't put it together. Why are all my clothes and my caboodle full of my makeup in the back of the van? Why is everything that I care Mom, why is the van? Okay. And we get to Tallahassee and she rented me a room in an apartment. And then the next day we were in the line to register for classes oh, at wow. Tallahassee wow. Community College. And I'm like, are you leaving me here? <laughs> like, didn't put anything together. <laughs> Such a brilliant kid. Um, and I proceeded to live in Tallahassee for the next six years. Um, kind of going to school, kind of not taking a lot of creative writing classes. Um, that's how I met Jo Harjo. She actually came into our class and did um, my favorite poem. What's my favorite Jo Harjo poem? Oh my God, I'm gonna forget it right now. Oh, that's awful. Um, I give you back. Standing like two feet from my desk, she did I give you back. And I was sucked in. I was, I was poetry for life at that point. Um, even if it was, I was gonna marry rich and read poetry to my kids and get a, a BA in MRS, I was going to read poetry to my children. Um, the BA in MRS did not happen. The dude that was supposed to make that happen, um, I got he got a really, really great poem written about him. Um, it's an also dark. Go ahead, read it, tell him about it. And then, um, uh, we. I used to go to, different little venues in Tallahassee. One of them was called Waterworks. And I had a fan base at Waterworks. Like, and coming to the mic, the open mic that everybody can go to, is Angelique Palmer. Ah, she's got to read, she's got to read. So of course my giant head wants to write more things so they can you know, keep doing that because it felt good. Um, and I used to go to the grand finale. It was much harder in that room for me because they didn't know who I was or worship me the proper way, um, the way they did at Waterworks. And then that just kind of went away. Um, that desire to be there, that feeling of I need to do that. Um, I started hardcore pursuing television news. Like I thought I was gonna be Jane Polly by the time I was 35. Um, and so I needed to get on my horse because I wasn't 21 anymore. And um, there was a suicide attempt in there. There was a baby scare and then an actual child. <laughs> then I actually got pregnant. I'm like, oh, oh. And you want to talk about hard screech on the brakes. And my darling, lovely, wonderful baby, who's now an adult, um, that makes me proud every day, was born. And my career became teaching. I was a substitute teacher at my mom's school and then a substitute teacher around the district, um, Miami-Dade County. That's not an easy place to substitute teach, but I did. And um, then I went back up to Tallahassee to finally finish my degree, you know, the one that it took six years to get. And um, then I went to Florida State. I finally went to Florida State. And when I walked the stage with my diploma, um, I thought of Mr. Filippo. I played a John Mayer song, which I'm not really happy about because he's turned out to be a sketch bucket. But um, 
I played a John Mayer song on the way to my graduation and looked up at the sky and it really was the color of the cowboy cliche. It was just gorgeous. And I said, thanks, Mr. D. And thank you, Mr. Diaz. And thank you, Mrs. Felice. And thank you, mom. And those are the four teachers that made me a poet. Now, later I sunk hard into being a television news producer because I wasn't gonna make anchor. It was too late for that, but I was gonna be a producer. And again, that depression happened, that low. I, I can see myself from the ceiling because I've left my body kind of depression. It wasn't the right career for me. Not only that, but I sucked at it. Like I, I kept pretending like I didn't suck at it. Um, and I'd go in every day, like you gotta beat me in order to say you won. Um, knowing that that's not the right stance to take. If it's supposed to happen, and there's my should, sorry, sorry, that's contradictory to what we just said. But if it was supposed to happen like that, I would be water, not rock. And I was not water. I was that big wrecking ball going against the wall every single day of my career in television. Um, and then one day, my daughter, who was graduating from middle school, didn't get into her first choice of high school. And I knew how tough it was to be in school in Miami-Dade. And my sister and I had been talking. And she said, uh, that's a lot of Anne's. I keep saying Anne. Sorry about that. Uh, um, <laughs> I was on the phone and I said, I don't think the sweet spirit that is my daughter is going to survive in a regular Miami-Dade County school. My sister said, if you move to Virginia, I will pay for her education and I will give you a year to write your book. And I laughed. Like I was still not independent. Uh, I was still kind of living with my mom and could barely afford car payments or insurance. Ha 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 ha. Quit, quit that. <laughs> to go live with and be dependent on another adult. Um, and my very good friend, Leonard Richardson, was sitting across the desk from me. Um, he's a much better television producer than I was. Uh, looked up from his screen and had to walk around this whole giant table at Channel 7 in Miami. He walked around the whole giant table um, while we were in this empty newsroom together in the middle of the night on a Saturday night and said, if you don't take it, I will never speak to you again. Do you know what kind of talent you're killing trying to be at this job? You're going to take this damn opportunity and you're going to run with it. Then he let my chair go and he was cursing me out as he walked out of the room. And I knew he was serious. And as scared as I was, I turned in my notice. It almost took my notice back. Like, and the executive producer was like, hey, if you don't want to quit, we can make a way for you to stay. And I almost said, no, okay, let's just, let's just take it all back. And I didn't. I didn't. I put everything in a car and once again moved up here and um, moved to a place that was foreign to me. And I wasn't chasing a guy. And I wasn't coming to college like a dumbass, not knowing what I was going to do. I was actually going towards something, not running away from something. And it was scary and new and weird. 
but I did it. In that time, I had been introduced to Poetry Slam and how it could be a national and international competitive venue to get words and personalities out there. And um, the way I was introduced to that was through a man named Will the Real One. Now, see, that's the traumatic part I'm not going to talk about. But he and I met when we were su supposed to. There it is. Ding, 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 ding. Um, but he wasn't supposed to be where he was when I met him. And I found him and he found me. And he didn't hang on to me the way I wish he would have. But he did hang on to me long enough for me to know that there was something else out there. And to give me a good discipline and a set of ethics that I carry with me today. And I took that with me to different poetry slams. And I think my very first time I, I, I competed in a poetry slam, um, sweet woman named Cassandra Tannenbaum, who runs the Flow Fest in Florida now, has nothing to do with poetry. It's a really cool festival though. Um, she said, the next time you come back to one of these poetry tournaments, you're coming back as a competitor. And it rang, it smacked of Leonard. And so I kind of just went, okay. And I, the first one I went to, um, there were 72 people, 72 women competing, and I finished 69th. So, you know, it would have been really easy to quit right there. <laughs> and five years later, I finished fifth in the world. So you have to... It was water. I, I, it was hard water. It was rough water. It was a lot of hearing no, and we don't understand the shit you're talking about. Why are you speaking in hither and thithers and blows? Um, and, and, and vowels. And suddenly my vowels became those. <laughs> and then they understood me. Um, and, and something Will said, too, is... Um, I said, I, I want to love them. I want to give them poems where everyone understands that I love them. He's like, no, you don't. Cuss them out. And, and that worked. Cussing people out works. <laughs> and sometimes you have to, that's a, an incredible tool to get your point across. And so I spent some time cussing some audiences out and, and telling them about themselves and telling the mirror about herself too. And that is where my, my um, success in Poetry Slam came from. And from there, and being the water in, in the particular equation, I found my way. Now, it's not without hardship, right? Because I went through a lot of those tournaments and, and just really did not do well. And paid to not do well, right? And, and paid for the wrong experience. Because I had to learn in 2016 and in 2017, I'm not paying to compete anymore. I've already competed. I understood what I needed to understand about myself on final stage in 2015. What I'm paying for now is the experience to be a part of this community still. And um, that was a lesson I had to learn later. But up into 2014, and 2014 being the hardest year of the I quit my job era, um, when I lost my dad to cancer, when I lost my car, and when I lost two jobs, not one, but two jobs. And um, in poetry, I got fired twice. I'd never been fired before. 
And no, not in once in my lifetime I've ever been fired. I was told to go home one day from a substitute teaching job. That's because I was nine months pregnant and they put a lizard on my desk and I had a Braxton Hicks contraction so hard it sat me down. Um, I understood why I was told to go home, <laughs> um, but I'd never been fired before. And it took all of that for me to sit down and go to Pink Door. And I think you know the rest. So, yeah. That is a fascinating story. <clears throat> um, uh, did I get I, around? Did I get back around on the highway? <laughs> you did. Yep. You took the whole service road and you're back to where you need to be. <coughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm processing uh, everything you everything that you said because that, that's such an incredible story. And, and there's so much brilliance and insight in there um, that I think people, I hope that people will, will draw a lot from. Um, you, you mentioned several times in our conversation sort of the balance between writing and then doing like what people say we should be doing, which is work that is probably not writing, right? Um, you know, how many generations of people have, have wanted to be writers, but have been told that there's no money in it. Um, you should go do something STEM related uh, and go learn to code. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and so I was, I was hoping that, that maybe you could talk a little bit about or speak a little bit to maybe the need for um, like a, a living wage or, or better wages or better pay for writers. Oh, that would be lovely. I just, um, I think about my friends who are making a living as, as working artists, um, as teaching artists and as um, people who create for a living. And so there are all these different avenues that they have to put together in order to create a living wage. I can think of off the top of my head, a friend of mine named Honey Hampton, who not only designs hats and, and does yoga classes, but also does poetry. Um, my friend Roscoe Burnham's, who happens to be the poet laureate of Richmond, Virginia, also has to run a venue and make sure he's doing teaching a poetry workshop. And these are the avenues of money. And, and not too long ago, was still working in the Amazon warehouse. Like that's that's a hard bite to, to chew on is I have poet laureate of Richmond, Virginia behind my name and I'm still working in the Amazon warehouse. That's not okay. We don't treat our artists the way we should, but we love art. It's this past Sunday, I did the best that I could to hang on uh, while watching the American Music Awards and not saying too many times, who are these people? Um, because that's what my mom would say. And oh God, did I turn into my mother? But um, somewhere along the line, I realized that we love to award arts. We're going to do it a lot the next coming weeks. That's all we do at the end of years is just say, here's a push card. Here's a this, here's a that. But we don't award the artists. We don't say thank you for making this piece of of history and this piece of solid art that we needed in the world to get us through this day, this hour, this minute, my dad's funeral, my mom's um, biopsy. We don't say thank you for these things the right way. We just say thank you. Like that pays us. A friend of mine was talking to me today about how we used to just get paid in exposure and 
you know, I'm a black woman. I don't need a tan. I'm good with exposure. Um, and now, honestly, when you get the residual check from things like Amazon, it's basically what you put out already coming back to you. It's basically exposure. I don't want to use Amazon as, as the bully because there's a lot of different places in which that is true. When you get the money back from selling your book, from selling your, your piece of art, your paintings, your sculptures, it's basically a residual for what you put out to create it. And that's not a living wage. That's not something a artist can live on. And yet they've given so much to this world. So I would love to see an artist union I would love to see an offshoot of that be a spoken word artist um, union in which we can help each other. We don't have to do a GoFundMe to pay for a funeral. We don't have to do a, co a GoFundMe in case I, I have a bad tooth, um, which is something I had to do. I needed dental surgery. And so I had to do a GoFundMe in order to pay for it. I'm not proud of that. Now I have full-time insurance. That's because I'm a kindergarten teacher, a conduit for money um, while I create. It's, it's not, a, and I, I realize in this particular equation, I am one of the fortunate ones. So it would be nice if we had a, a way to protect each other, to give to each other, and to, to make sure that there is a, what's the word I'm looking for, safety net for us to be freelance artists. But the bottom line is, it's not gonna be something like the Council for Humanities. They, they love to slap themselves on the back or the different letter soups up here in, in, in DC because the people that get the money are the people that are known already, not the people that need it. And the people that need it are still creating. And I, I think there's probably this added layer of frustration, right? Um, and I can only speak to it from the writing that I do. So I, I am completing my MFA at Wilkes um, in screenwriting. And in the screenwriting world, there are a lot of like predatory com uh, contests and competitions um, where you're paying like not an insignificant amount of money um, just to just to have it read, um, but if you want notes, then it's basically like double the fee. Um, but then when you read like the fine print and what the prize is, it, it's really just like a copy of Final Draft and maybe like a, an animated GIF <laughs> that you can put on social media <laughs> saying that you you won. And and there's no there's no guarantees like like. The, the likelihood that something's going to come from it is very like extraordinarily slim, you know? And, yes. and so does I, I, I'm guessing from your reaction that there are uh, similar sorts of predatory um, issues in poetry as well. Oh yeah. I was, I was halfway down the path and I'm so glad there's, and this is part of that union I'm talking about where I can turn to someone and ask a question, but goodness, would I love to be able to pay that person for the answer that they mm -hmm. gave me because that's labor too. 
Mm-hmm. But I uh, can turn to them and say, I got this email about this showcase and I have to pay for this amount of time. No, honey, no. Mm-hmm. And, and I had to hear it out loud back from that person to understand this is not the way that works. Yes, I pay to go to open mics and then I get on the mic at the open mic and I, I work out a first draft out loud. That's, that's kind of part of the gift. I get that. But to pay to be showcased in order for somebody to, and I'm not talking about things like NACA. Those are actually above board and help you get gigs. That's why they gather all those people in one place so that you can do the showcase so they can see you and book you. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Um, I'm talking about different and much more shady people who are going to reach out to you. Mm-hmm. And you're not reaching out to them. Um I'm talking about writing contests, and that's in air quotes, where you've written something and and you get back something that says we've received, and unfortunately, due to the overwhelming amount of, but you made your rent, didn't you, Mm -hmm. with your overwhelming amount of. And so um, one of the people that sits on my shitty committee is C there, and I also like that C there's name is Rejection. See there, we knew you were going to get rejected. And so I pulled way back off of that, not for good reasons, because of see there, mm-hmm. I pulled way back off of, of giving people my money and writing contests and stuff like that. I could have gone down a really sour road. It could have really soured me to writing. Um, some of the people on my shitty committee do a good job. Um, I would have loved to have been a little bit more, have a little bit more publication under my belt. Um, I know that it's likely I would have had C there not been in place, but um, there's also some really good get back from that hot stove things that that, uh, C there has taught me. And, And one of them is those predatory writing competitions. One of those predatory showcases I would hate for that to happen to another person. A good, honest union would keep those things out of our community. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I wish that uh, the various, like, again, like the Writers Guild Association or, or whatever, would would step up somehow. But it, I, I feel like everybody's making money somewhere, so I will, I will tamp down my own cynicism um, because I've taken up. <laughs> I've taken so much of your time. We were recording this the day before holiday, um, mm-hmm. the really night before a holiday. Uh, you are an incredible poet. I've been so happy to to get this opportunity to speak with you. Um, I I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of Also Dark. Um, thank you so much for I, taking I, time. I know I know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as as the outreach uh, coordinator, I don't think I'll have. If I can't find a copy of it, I don't deserve to be in this in this position. <laughs> I really so. appreciate this opportunity. Um, and thank you for waiting for me a day before a holiday because as a kindergarten teacher, I don't think I had the brain space to do this until now. But I appreciate your questions and your honesty and I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you so much.
For more Untenured tracks, please go to untenured.space to access our archives, or go to patreon.com slash untenured to help support us.